Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 8, Project Mercury Flight 6, Faith 7. The final flight of Project Mercury. Last time, we covered the spectacularly successful flight of Wally Shira aboard Sigma 7. In a single mission, NASA had nearly doubled their time in space, while simultaneously squashing a number of bugs that had been plaguing the program. Shira enjoyed a smooth ride during a mission that suffered no major issues while drastically cutting the rate of use of onboard consumables, and even performing some useful science along the way. Shira's flight was so successful, in fact, that there were some who pushed to end Project Mercury right then and there. They had accomplished their three-orbit goal four times over, and had proven that they could tame a complex and unruly spacecraft. Calling it a day at this point would ensure that they ended the program on a high note instead of tempting fate with one more flight. Was it really worth the risk to continue to push the limit when Project Gemini, a brand new program, was approaching on the horizon? Apparently, the answer was yes, and the allure of a full day in space was just too much to turn down. At this point, the Soviets had already flown several missions that had not only surpassed 24 hours in space, but had even crossed into multi-day missions. While America could not hope to catch their total hour count at this point, it could at least join the realm of greater than 24-hour missions. A full-day mission was actually an early goal of Project Mercury, but was put on the back burner since it was viewed as too difficult at that point. In light of the trouble experienced on Friendship 7 and Aurora 7, it seems like that was probably a reasonable call. But the success of Sigma 7 had proven that this elusive goal was more attainable than previously thought. A 24-hour mission works out to just over 16 orbits, with the original mission plan calling for 18 orbits. But this would make recovery a little tricky, since firing the retro rockets late would result in the spacecraft landing in the United States instead of the nice soft ocean. In order to ensure a smoother recovery, the mission plan for Mercury Atlas 9 actually called for a 22-orbit flight. It's kind of crazy to think that just this six-orbit extension to the mission duration was longer than any previous Mercury flight. Squeezing 22 orbits out of a spacecraft designed to fly for three orbits was not going to be easy. Extensive modifications were required for the vehicle that would carry Project Mercury to the finish line. First of all, let's finally get that periscope out of there. The heavy and borderline useless device had been on the chopping block before, but after the evaluation of Wally Shira on Sigma-7, there was no question that it would be removed. A few other items were also removed, since they proved to no longer be necessary, including a radio and a telemetry transmitter. There was an attempt to replace the 17-pound fiberglass astronaut couch with a sort of space hammock, but that was scrapped due to concerns about the pilot being catapulted into his control panel or becoming entangled while in a sinking capsule. Another notable piece of equipment that was not to be on this flight was the RSCS, the Rate Stabilization Control System. Originally intended for use during re-entry, its thirst for fuel on Sigma-7 ensured that it would not fly again. To be clear, this was simply the control electronics that operated the system, and not an entire set of thrusters. The RSCS used the same attitude control thrusters as the Manual Proportional System, since the manual proportional system would still be on board, its thrusters would remain as well. One of the more important additions to the spacecraft was an extra fuel tank placed alongside the existing ones in the rear of the vehicle. The extra 15 pounds of fuel may not sound like much, but the Mercury astronauts had learned how to make it last. 
Additionally, the fuel tanks for the automatic and manual systems were connected, allowing the pilot to transfer fuel between the two systems if necessary. Had this system been on Aurora 7, Scott Carpenter could have transferred automatic fuel to the empty manual tank and re-entered with the manual proportional or RSCS control systems if desired. Other consumables added to the flight were two additional batteries, four more pounds of oxygen, and a little under 14 pounds of water for both drinking and component cooling. Sadly for Cooper, the amount of activated charcoal used in the onboard odor absorber was actually slightly reduced. A fair number of science experiments also hitched a ride aboard Mercury Atlas 9. The balloon tether experiment from Aurora 7 made a return, as well as the radiation detecting films from Sigma 7. Among the new experiments was a flashing beacon that would be released from the spacecraft to see how far away it would remain visible to the astronaut. Cooper also had access to some new cameras to better capture the view from space. One more addition to the capsule was a slow-scan TV camera that for the first time provided live footage of the astronaut in orbit. Sure, the video only showed a new image once every two seconds, but that was an infinite improvement over previous flights. Mission controllers were treated to a spooky, distorted, black-and-white image of astronaut Cooper in his spacesuit as he hurtled around the world. All told, there were over 180 changes made to the capsule, as compared to the one flown months earlier by Shara. Amazingly, after all the additions and deletions of onboard equipment, the final spacecraft weight was just under 4 pounds heavier than Sigma-7, and about 46 pounds heavier than John Glenn's Friendship-7. Leroy Gordon Cooper was born on March 6, 1929, in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Cooper, who went by his middle name Gordon, or if you really knew him, Gordo, took a more circuitous route to the space program than some of the other Mercury astronauts. Upon graduating high school in 1945, he intended to enlist in the military, but found that the Army and Navy were no longer accepting volunteers. Instead, he signed up with the U.S. Marine Corps. He joined too late to fight in World War II, so he bounced around from assignment to assignment with the Marines, including a stint on the President's Honor Guard, until 1949, when he transferred to the newly formed United States Air Force. He lived in Germany for four years while testing jet aircraft and studying aerospace engineering. Finally, like his colleagues, he became a test pilot, helping put the F-102 and F-106 through their paces. After surviving his stint as a test pilot and the perhaps more arduous Project Mercury application process, he received a phone call asking him when he could report to Langley for astronaut training. His response? How about right now? After watching five of his fellow astronauts fly before him, Cooper's chance arrived with Mercury Atlas 9. He named his spacecraft Faith 7 in honor of, quote, my trust in God, my country, and my teammates. This caused some concern with the public relations folks at the space agency, since if there was a repeat of the Liberty Bell 7 incident, there might be headlines that read along the lines of, NASA loses faith. But the name stuck. And Cooper would need ample amounts of faith in his teammates for this mission. Due to the nature of his orbit, the astronaut would be out of communication range with the tracking network for long periods of time. The Mercury tracking network was an engineering marvel, but it had been designed to support the far more limited three-orbit flight of Friendship 7. There was simply no feasible way to remain in contact with the spacecraft as it passed over such a wide swath of the Earth's surface. Cooper would have to be more self-sufficient than any previous astronaut, and deal with any potential issue that arose in the overworked capsule entirely on his own for as long as an hour.
Modifications to the capsule and booster took some time, so the mission was to take place in the spring of 1963. The launch was originally scheduled for May 14th, which, by the way, is my mom's birthday. Hi, Mom. I know you're listening. But had to be delayed to the 15th after problems with the Bermuda tracking station and the diesel-powered launch gantry couldn't be solved in time. On May 15, 1963, unlike the previous day, the countdown to launch proceeded smoothly with no major issues. Also unlike the previous day, Cooper did not find a toilet plunger with a remove-before-flight tag in his cockpit placed there by Alan Shepard. Oh, those astronauts. Such antics. At 8.04 a.m., the final flight of Project Mercury began, and Gordon Cooper was on his way to a full day in orbit. Ascent saw no problems, and just over five minutes later, the Atlas rocket shut down right on time. The spacecraft separated from the booster, and Cooper switched to the fly-by-wire mode to perform the most efficient turnaround maneuver yet, using less than a fifth of a pound of fuel. This was impressive even compared to the frugal third of a pound expended by Shira on the previous flight. The turnaround took a leisurely 100 seconds to complete, but when you've got 22 orbits to get through, why rush? I could take you through the orbit-by-orbit, play-by-play of the mission, but that would get pretty dull pretty quick for this flight. For the first 19 laps or so, there were essentially no problems to speak of. Consumables stayed above anticipated levels, the astronaut remained comfortable in the controlled environment of his suit and capsule, and the spacecraft was mostly behaving itself. So let's skip to some of the fun stuff. Gordon Cooper saw a lot of stuff while in orbit. In addition to seeing his tumbling Atlas booster and John Glenn's famous fireflies like the other Mercury pilots, he also had a lot of time to simply relax and look out the window. Even the comparatively long flight of Sigma-7 had plenty of mission activities to keep the astronaut busy, but Mercury Atlas 9 was more than four times longer than Mercury Atlas 8, and it emphasized the conservation of resources, so there was a lot of downtime. Gordon Cooper had an abundance of the ultimate luxury in space, free time. While looking out the window during that free time, and assigned photography time, Cooper reported seeing the kinds of things you might expect. Stunning vistas of sprawling mountain ranges, glistening rivers, the lights of cities at night, the ethereal light of the airglow layer of the atmosphere, plenty of stuff like that. But he also said that given the proper lighting conditions, he could actually see the wakes left by boats, trains moving along their rails, roads and highways, and even individual houses. This was so surprising to those on the ground that many flat out refused to believe it, instead assuming that Cooper was experiencing some mild form of hallucination. The idea that a man could look out the window and use his unaided eye to see individual houses, roads, and vehicles from hundreds of miles away in space was shocking and would lead to some interesting ideas for the future of the space program. I'm sure the folks who went on to work on the manned orbiting laboratory perked their ears up at the news. The MOL was planned to be a sort of manned spy satellite, but was never launched, despite recruiting 14 new military-based astronauts for the program. But that's a story for a supplemental. The flight of Faith 7 was so long that the plan was for Cooper to become the first astronaut to sleep in space. He didn't waste any time checking that box, though, as he took advantage of some drifting flight time during his second orbit to catch a quick nap. He did have an assigned block of time to attempt to put in a full night's sleep, though in space I guess a night isn't very long, but whoever did the scheduling on that part of the mission didn't really think it through. 
Instead of sleeping, Cooper spent much of his assigned rest period taking numerous photographs of the wonders of South America and the Himalayas. He did eventually get in about six hours of sleep, which he reported was extremely comfortable in the microgravity environment. Despite the comfort, he did wake up a number of times, as evidenced by the occasional thought he said out loud for the benefit of the onboard voice recorder. Cooper also had plenty of time to try out some new space food. Modern astronauts would feel right at home with the presentation of Cooper's onboard rations, even if the quality has improved a bit over the years. Just like today, Cooper was to take small pouches of dehydrated food and attach them to a water dispenser that would make the meal a little more appetizing. Unfortunately, he had more than a little trouble with the valve and consequently spilled a fair amount of water. The water floated around the cabin and collected on his control panel, but thankfully did not cause any issues. When not performing spacecraft upkeep, science experiments, sleeping, taking photos out the window, or spilling water all over the place, Cooper was apparently singing, or at least he was on orbits 18 and 19. Unfortunately for us, I was unable to track down what exactly he was singing, so let's just assume it was 1963 hit song Surfin' USA, cause why not? But the good times can't last forever, and as Orbit 19 rolled around, it was time for things to get a little more interesting. While preparing for an experiment, Cooper noticed that the 0.05G indicator light was lit. Normally, this would indicate that the spacecraft was starting to decelerate as it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. This was pretty alarming, since there were still three more orbits to go, and Cooper was somewhere over the Pacific Ocean. He responded by disabling the fuse that ran power to the ASCS, which again is the automatic control system. As he passed over Hawaii, he explained his situation to the ground, and the troubleshooting began. After trying out a few tests, it was determined that the automatic system's gyroscopes and horizon scanners were not receiving power. Without these components, the system would have no way of orienting the spacecraft and maintaining its attitude as it revolved around the Earth. However, it was determined that given the right sequence of manual overrides, it would still perform the slow roll maneuver required for a proper re-entry. So Cooper was going to have to limp along in manual mode for now, but at least he would have the automatic system for re-entry. Except, whoops, on the next orbit, the primary and backup power inverters for the ASCS failed and brought down the entire automatic system with it. The remainder of the mission would have to be flown under manual control, with either the fly-by-wire or the manual proportional systems, all the way to splashdown. It was around this time that Cooper simultaneously displayed his calm under pressure while also illuminating how serious the situation was. Just before passing out of range of yet another ground station, he said, quote, Well, things are beginning to stack up a little. ASCS inverter is acting up, and my CO2 is building up in the suit. Partial pressure of O2 is decreasing in the cabin. Standby inverter won't come on the line. Other than that, things are fine. With the little time remaining, Cooper and his support team on the ground worked out a revised checklist for re-entry. He would resynchronize his onboard clock with the ground and would kick the entire entry sequence off manually. Once the spacecraft had begun to tear through the tenuous upper atmosphere, he would become the first astronaut to perform a completely manual entry. Given the quality, or lack thereof, of Cooper's sleep earlier in the mission, and the importance of the upcoming events, the astronaut was told to, quote, take green for go. 
This was a coded instruction for Cooper to pop an amphetamine stimulant tablet to help focus his senses for the critical sequence of events through preparation and execution of reentry. With no gyroscopes to rely on, Cooper slewed his spacecraft around to the proper attitude for the retrofire burn. Putting all his training to use, and even marking the window to help align with specific constellations, he oriented his capsule as best he could, listened to the countdown over the radio, and manually kicked off the three retro rockets. He originally planned to fly through re-entry using the fly-by-wire system, but had trouble getting the higher thrust mode to engage, so he re-enabled the manual proportional system and just let both of them run through the entry. The double control authority caused him to overshoot a little at times, but ensured he had all the control power he needed. Once again, Cooper's name for his vehicle proved apt, since the faith he had in his training and his team paid off. Faith 7 emerged from the rigors of atmospheric entry, and after a few more flips of a switch by Cooper, drifted serenely down towards the Atlantic Ocean under its parachute. 34 hours, 19 minutes, and 49 seconds after liftoff, the spacecraft splashed down just over a mile off course, with recovery forces only 4 miles away. It was the most accurate landing yet. Similar to Shira, Cooper remained in his capsule as it was recovered, and transferred to the deck of the waiting aircraft carrier. 40 minutes after splashdown, he activated the explosive hatch on the capsule, and waited patiently in his cockpit as he was given a quick medical exam. After being extracted from the spacecraft and standing up, he found he was a little dizzy, but suffered no lasting effects from his time in space. Cooper had once again proven the value of having a human on board the spacecraft, as he calmly worked around multiple unexpected systems failures. Had the scientific payloads on board been flying on an automated capsule, they likely would never have been recovered. Human adaptability and flexibility is not going to be replaced by automation anytime soon. Cooper also proved that the Mercury astronauts were anything but spam in a can, as pilot Chuck Yeager put it, but were in fact active and engaged pilots. As Cooper a bit unsteadily walked off for his extensive medical exam, presidential phone call, and so on, he could take pleasure in the knowledge that he had proven he didn't need any automated system to hold his hand. And with that, we can call it a wrap on the United States' first manned spaceflight program. Project Mercury had started from scratch and flown six men, four of them in orbit, in just over five years. It accomplished its goal several times over, and did so with no major incidents or injuries, even including the dramatic events surrounding Liberty Bell 7. As those involved with Mercury wrapped up the last remaining loose ends, the rest of NASA looked onwards, to Project Gemini, and even further, onto the Apollo program. So we'll be talking about Project Gemini in two weeks, right? Not quite yet. The plan for next time is to do a proper wrap-up of Project Mercury, looking at its initial goals, what it accomplished, and what implications it had for the future of spaceflight. I will also cover a topic I've been pretty quiet on so far, the complicated and controversial decision to go to the moon. After that, most spaceflight histories would typically jump right into Project Gemini, but we're going to take a slightly different path. As I mentioned in the introduction episode of this podcast, my plan is to cover all NASA flights that pass the Kármán line, 100 kilometers in altitude. Well, between Project Mercury and Project Gemini were two flights of the X-15 that crossed that magic boundary and not only entered space, but thanks to NASA involvement with those flights, also entered this podcast. 
but the X-15 can wait a couple more weeks. I'll see you in two weeks for a revisit, recap, and ruminations on Project Mercury, as well as a look at why we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Spoiler, it's not because it is easy. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Thank you.